Well, welcome to Understanding Christianity. I am your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I am the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. Last week, we started a new series during the summer going through the book of 1 Timothy. Um, I thought it would be helpful to my listeners and also to uh, my church family since we don't have a lot of activities that go on during the summer as far as midweek teaching and things like that, that this would be a way to continue to bless those with some expository teaching Especially if you are a Christian leader, you are a pastor listening to this, or a seminary student, or an elder, or a deacon, and you're interested in uh, Christian leadership, the, ver- the book of First Timothy is very helpful as far as giving us instructions on how to be a Christian leader. And also, if you're not a Christian leader and you're just listening to this podcast because you enjoy understanding Christianity, uh, this is also helpful to understand just what the Bible says about a healthy church and Christian leadership. And there's there's a lot that we can glean from the book of 1 Timothy. And so last time, uh, we looked just at uh, the introduction. We looked at the city of Ephesus. We looked at the fact that the elders were going to rise up and cause false teaching and that Timothy was charged to deal with this issue head on, uh, the false teaching. And so that was where we left off last week. Um, and now we come to how the gospel of grace has impacted Paul personally in his own life and also how the also how the gospel impacts us so let's read together first timothy chapter 1 verses 12 through 17 i thank him who's given me strength christ jesus our lord because he judged me faithful appointing me to his service though formerly i was a blasphemer persecutor an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In verse 12, Paul is amazed that God would appoint him not only to be saved, but also to be appointed as a Apostle, Um, I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. I thank him. In the original language, it's I continually thank. I'm, I'm always having this attitude of gratefulness for God's work in my life. And in other words, if you read between the lines here, the way Paul is using the language is that Paul really can't get over the fact that God saved him. And not only that God saved him, but that God would call him to be an apostle. And God and Paul thanks God for strength. I thank him who's given me strength. You think about Paul's life um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. 
we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. God has given us this treasure in jars of clay, the gospel. Uh, Paul's saying, listen, I, I, I'm a minister of the gospel. I am weak. I've experienced all these hardships. Uh, but the reason that I'm thanking God is because he's given me strength. He's given me power. Uh, it belongs to God, not to me. Uh, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. God did not choose Paul to be saved or to be an apostle because of any intrinsic worthiness or merit that God foresaw in Paul that would move God to do so. Uh, when, when Paul says that God judged him faithful, it's not the idea that it was merit or that there was something worthy in Paul that was the basis or the cause of God's choice, um, but it was God's sovereign decision to appoint Paul to ministry. Augustine said this, God does not choose a person who's worthy, but by the act of choosing him, he makes the person worthy. Now there's a play on words here. In verse 11, the verse just right before it, it says that in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted, Paul's been entrusted with the gospel. And here in verse 13, I mean, sorry, in verse 12, it says, God judged me faithful, faithful. Um, it's similar wording here. When God called Paul to be an apostle, he equipped Paul to proclaim the gospel accurately, to be a trustworthy, faithful steward of the gospel. Mounts in his commentary says, Paul is probably saying that God knew that he would be trustworthy in the future and therefore appointed him to service in the present. Paul's faithfulness was a potential yet to be realized. One thing we do know is that there was nothing good in Paul that moved God to do this uh, because Paul is going to list three negative or sinful issues in his life before his, his conversion. Uh, notice what Paul says in verse 13. Though formally, okay, so formally, his life before God saved him on the road to Damascus. What did Paul say about his life? He says, though formally, I was a blasphemer, number one. Number two, I was a persecutor. And number three, I was an insolent opponent. Number one, he was a blasphemer. You go back to the book of Acts and you can read Paul's testimony of how God saved him on that road to Damascus and his life before. Um, Acts 26, 11, Paul is giving testimony. He says, I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Okay, so he was a blasphemer. Number two, Paul was a persecutor of the church, Acts 22.4, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and 
women. Then number three, it says Paul was an insolent or a violent opponent. Acts 8 verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Paul says, listen, I was a blaspheming, arrogant, violent persecutor of the church. So there was nothing good in me that moved God to save me. As a matter of fact, if you looked at my life, it was outrageously sinful. And notice what Paul attributes this sinful behavior to. He says there at the end of verse 13, I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. He was ignorant of God's way of salvation. Doesn't mean that Paul is not held accountable or gets Paul off the hook. It's just in his blindness, in his rebellious, as an unbeliever, Paul said, I was ignorant of God's grace. I was ignorant of the gospel. And again, I don't think Paul was using ignorance as an excuse for what he was doing, but he was simply saying he was doing what he was doing because he had no clue about the truth of the gospel. Um, he was blinded by Satan. Uh, Paul actually says in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who's the image of God. Paul, as an unbeliever, was blinded by Satan to the glory of Christ. And so he's acting in violence. He's acting as a blasphemer. He's acting uh, in persecution. He's acting in ignorance. Uh, Paul is piling up these descriptions to say, listen, I was a bad dude. I mean, I, I did some serious, serious sinful things against God and His church. Yet, in spite of these three strikes against Paul, uh, being a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, Paul says, but I received mercy. I received mercy. Um, what's mercy? The way Paul words this in the original language, it's in what we call the passive voice. It's something Paul received. It was something that was done to Paul. Uh, Paul did not initiate this mercy. God was the one that, that solely showed Paul mercy. First uh, Peter 2.10, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Mercy and grace Paul received. I was a blasphemer, formally, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And then verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Grace overflowed. It's an interesting word there. This word is only used here in the entire New Testament. It's, a, it's a, what we call a hapax legama. That's just Latin for a one-time usage of a word. Uh, so it's a very special, unique word in the original language. It's a compound word, which means it's, it's two words coming together, over and abundant. Uh, Paul, in a sense, is actually making up a word to show how powerfully, how generously, how outrageously superabundant God's grace was to him in Christ Jesus. This grace overflowed in superabundance to him. 
as a blasphemer, as a murderer, as a violent opponent of God. This grace overpowered all of that sin, and God showed mercy in a powerful, superabundant way to Paul. Now, in verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. This is a solemn way of Paul saying, listen, I'm going to say something very important. It kind of reminds me of the, what Jesus used in the Gospel of John. Um, in the Gospel of John, over and over again, Jesus would say, amen, amen, in the original language, which is translated in our English translations, um, truly, truly, I say to you, or, or I tell you the truth. Uh, Paul is kind of imitating this solemn um, expression that Jesus used And so when Paul says the saying is trustworthy, actually throughout all the pastoral epistles, he uses this little expression five times, this formula, the saying is trustworthy. But the question is, okay, what is the trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance? What are we supposed to stand up and pay attention to? Well, notice what Paul says. The saying is trustworthy, I'm in verse 15, and deserving of full acceptance that, here's the statement, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Jesus Christ came into the world. This is the doctrine of the incarnation. Jesus, as the Messiah, left the glories of heaven, was sent by his Father on a mission. John 12, 46, Jesus says, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So the trustworthy saying is that Christ Jesus came into the world. He came in the flesh, born of a virgin, sent on a mission. But what was that mission? What was the purpose of Jesus coming into the world? Well, Paul says it's to save sinners, to definitively save sinners. When the angel announces the birth of Jesus in Matthew one twenty one, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Mark 10.45, for even the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul summarizes this gospel message in 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. Paul says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you're being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. Okay, this whole idea of I'm giving to you what's of first importance. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. What's this trustworthy saying? What's of first importance? Well, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says it this way that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And so it's this whole idea of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so I want you to notice that that Jesus does not make salvation a, a hypothetical or a theoretical possibility. But every time the Bible uses the language of Jesus coming to save, it's an idea of a definite atonement. Jesus came to save sinners, not not to make salvation possible, 
not to set up a system of, you know, I died on the cross and and now it's available to whoever wants to come and it's kind of up to you. No, Jesus came to definitively, particularly, save sinners. And notice what Paul says, of whom I am the worst or the foremost. Again, it's, it's a rare term. Paul refers to himself as the worst or the foremost of sinners. And, and again, as you read Paul's words here, Paul has this lingering amazement that he'd been forgiven of these past egregious sins. He could not ever get over God's saving him. And so I have a question for you. I wonder if we have this same attitude as Paul. Now, we may not have as bad a past as Paul had, or maybe you have had a past like that. But my question for you is, as a believer in Jesus Christ, are you still amazed? Are you still shocked? Are you still in awe that God saved you, that God sent Jesus Christ to save you, to shower you with mercy, to shower you with grace. One of the things that I'm afraid happens oftentimes in the Christian life is that we get so comfortable in our salvation and and the radical nature of the gospel of grace ceases to amaze us. We just kind of take for granted, oh yeah, Jesus died for my sins and and yeah, I'm going to heaven and, and it's all cool. May we never get over the fact that we too were the worst of sinners and that God showered us with mercy and showered us with grace. You know, you know, Paul, when you read his writings, he never got over the fact that God saved him. God showed him mercy. Verse 16, I received mercy. Again, that same terminology, I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the worst, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul gives the reason here for God's mercy in his life. Paul's basically saying, listen, I'm a living illustration. I'm a model. I'm an example of exactly how God does save the worst of sinners. When Paul there says, I received mercy, it's actually, in the original language, literally, I was mercied. I was mercied. It's the verbal form of the word mercy. It's very similar to what he quotes in Romans 9, 15, and 16, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I compassion, so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God showed mercy, grace to Paul as the worst of sinners as an example that Jesus might display his perfect patience. The word display there, that Jesus might display, it means to, to powerfully demonstrate, to put on, to put on display, to, to authoritatively show. What did God powerfully demonstrate in Paul's life for all to see at his conversion? Well, it was perfect patience, complete patience. God showed Paul patience. All those years of blaspheming, 
All those years of persecuting the church, all those years of being the worst of sinners, God patiently waited until it was his sovereign timing to knock Paul off his horse on the road to Damascus and reach down and save him with sovereign grace. And you think about the complete and perfect patience God shows to you and me. When God passed before Moses back in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This was what I call the credo, the John 3.16, the definitive statement in the Old Testament about God's character. That God is a, a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. He's a God of patience. He's abounding in, in that hesed, that steadfast love. Psalm 86, 15, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Joel 2.13, Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. You remember the story of Jonah in Nineveh, this wicked pagan city that were Gentile idolaters and and Jonah goes into the city and basically says eight words in the Hebrew language. Turner burns basically what he said. And then the people repent. And the people are broken and cut to the quick and they believe the word of the Lord and, and God relents from disaster. And then Jonah goes up on the side of the hill and he gets mad at God. He gets angry at God and he blames God. And what does he blame God for? I knew, God, you weren't going to destroy them because you are a patient God. Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. He prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. <laughs> Jonah gets mad that God shows mercy to pagans who repented. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. This amazing, powerful, complete, perfect patience, this mercy, this grace that was all shown to a rebellious sinner like Paul serves as an example serves as a model, an illustration of how God saves sinners. Now, here's a great theological truth that you will often see in the Bible. And let me say it theologically, and then I'll say it maybe a little bit easier to understand. Soteriology leads to doxology. And let me teach you two theological terms. Soteriology is the study of salvation. It comes from the Greek word soter, which means salvation, ology at the end, obviously the study of. So soteriology is the study of God's salvation. So soteriology or God's salvation leads to doxology. Now you've heard of the song, the doxology. Doxology is also a Greek term. It comes from the Greek word doxa, which means worship or glorify. 
And so what I'm really saying is, when you think and ponder and are amazed at God's amazing grace and mercy in your salvation, it can only lead to you to erupt in an outburst of praise and adoration and doxology. When you ponder the radical nature of God's grace to you in salvation, the only appropriate response is it should lead you to burst out in praise for that great salvation. And that's what Paul does here. In verse 17, we call this a doxology. It's, a, it's a, an eruptive burst out of praise that, that kind of seems a little bit um, out of place. Paul's been talking about salvation. He's been talking about grace. And then you know it's a doxology when it usually starts with the word to the the Lord or to the King, and then it ends with the, with the word amen. But let's listen to this eruption of praise, this doxology that Paul uh, breaks out into as he's been thinking about his egregious sin and the radical nature of God's salvation in his life. Verse 17, to the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. To the King, to the King, Paul is going to give four powerful descriptions of the character and nature and attributes of God as king. And it's interesting he uses the terminology there, to the king. To the king of the ages. To the eternal king. The eternal king. This, this speaks about the eternal nature of God from everlasting to everlasting, always being God. Psalm chapter 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God has always existed as the eternal king. He has no beginning. He has no end. Nobody created God. He's always been there in existence from everlasting to everlasting. Psalm 102, 25 through 27. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. To the king eternal. This speaks of the eternal nature of God being God from everlasting to everlasting. But secondly, notice what else he says. Immortal or unchangeable. The unchangeable, immortal, immutable God. The God who does not change. Numbers chapter 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God does not change in his essence, in his being, in his purposes. God is steadfast. He's the immovable, immutable, immutable, immortal, unchangeable God. Malachi 3, 6. For the Lord, for I the Lord do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So the King, the Father, the, the Lord of the universe, He's eternal from everlasting to everlasting. He's the eternal King. He's the immortal. He's the unchanging God. 
But number three, he's the invisible God. The invisible God. Do you remember back when Moses asked to see the Lord's glory back in Exodus chapter 33? Listen to the words of Exodus 33, 18 through 23. Moses said, he's talking to the Lord, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. Obviously, metaphorical language of God having a face and backside, for we know the Father, God, the Father's invisible, has no body, has no flesh, he, he's spirit. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. So Paul says to the king eternal, the eternal God, to the king immortal, the unchanging God, to the king invisible, the God who is spirit that no one can see. But then he says to the only God. Some translations say to the only wise God. Uh, this is back related to the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4-5. through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So he is the eternal God, the king. He's the immortal, unchangeable God. He's the invisible God, and he's the only God. There is no other gods before God. To this king belongs honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Psalm 34, 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Revelation 4, 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So Paul is thanking the Lord Jesus for the salvation in his life because he was this egregious, rebellious blasphemer. He was the worst of sinners. He formerly acted in, in ignorance and in disobedience. And God showed him extravagant grace as an example to, to show that how God truly saves sinners by showing perfect patience. And as, as Paul ponders God's work of grace in his life, he just erupts in this burst of praise to this powerful, almighty God of the universe who would dare save a sinner like Paul. Now, at the end of chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, Paul's going to revisit this charge to Timothy in dealing with the issue at hand with the false teachers in the church. Now, now, you may have to go back and listen to the last podcast where I set up what was going on in the church, but Paul's going to readdress this. So let's just see how the chapter ends. So we're at the end of chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. This charge 
I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Okay, after recounting the power of the gospel and how Timothy should spend his time teaching and focusing on the gospel instead of irreverent, silly myths, Paul then returns to the charge to this young pastor to confront the heresy in the Ephesian church. And and notice the language that he uses. Paul uses a military term here. He tells Timothy that you may wage the good warfare. Now, he's talking to a young pastor, and those of you that are pastors that are listening, those of you that are in ministry, you know that pastoring a church is a grueling spiritual battle, especially when confronting false teaching, when confronting division in the church, when confronting demonic forces. Uh, Pastoring a church is spiritual warfare. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3-4, through 4, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So when we fight the good fight of faith, as we pastor churches, our fight is not against people. Sometimes we think it is. Sometimes we really think our, our enemy is, is other people. Our enemy is flesh and blood. no. The, the warfare we wage is spiritual. And we have divine power to destroy strongholds. Not, not to destroy people, but to destroy strongholds. To destroy thoughts and theology and worldviews that come against Christ and his church. And so Paul is telling Timothy that pastoring a church is like a grueling warfare wage the good warfare fight the good fight of faith verse 19 holding faith and a good conscience this reminds us back of of verse 5 that we looked at last time back in in verse 5 of chapter 1 paul says the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith He, he reiterates this holding faith and a good conscience. In other words, what Paul's saying is, Timothy, as a young pastor, you need to be a man of faith in the fact that you've trusted Christ alone for salvation, and you also need to be a man of integrity, of good conscience, whose life is backed up by your preaching of the gospel. Because there are those in the church who had rejected this, making shipwreck of their faith the word rejected there verse 19 by rejecting this some have made shipwreck of their faith let's talk about two words there rejecting the word rejecting there describes a violent willful and stubborn rejection it's not a casual type of attitude it's no i'm digging my heels in i am adamantly, arrogantly, violently, rebelliously rejecting the gospel. Uh, Stephen, when he's being stoned and he's standing before his accusers, 
Um, He describes the rejection of Moses' authority in the Old Testament and used that same word. In Acts 7.39, part of Peter's speech, he says, Our fathers refused to obey him, that's Moses, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. They thrust aside. They they rejected. It's, It's a willful, stubborn rejection of truth. And what does this lead to? Shipwreck of their faith. Now, let's talk about this imagery. What does it mean to make shipwreck of one's faith? It's, it's an, it's a, it evokes an image of, of the seas, uh, you know, maritime, nautical imagery of, of, of shipwreck. What does it mean? Well, there are two possible meanings of this word shipwrecked and in the context of what Paul's talking about. Um, here's interpretation or, or meaning number one. Uh, these men is specifically listed, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Um, they rejected the faith personally. They had apostatized. Uh, they are in that Hebrew 6 category of being impossible to repent. They personally had placed themselves so far beyond any opportunity to repent that they are willfully hardening their hearts and rebelling. That's one way to look at it. The other one is these men had dirtied the name of Christ. They had affected the faith and the reputation of the church, but they could actually repent of that. So the question is, is is making shipwreck of your faith mean that it's totally over, that you have no chance, that if you've shipwrecked your faith, you've placed yourself beyond the point of being able to repent and come back? Or if you've shipwrecked your faith, does that mean that you can repent? Uh, I think that there's enough biblical evidence to see that you could look at it both ways. If one is truly elect, if you're truly elect, if you're truly a genuine born-again believer, if you're an authentic Christian and you go down the path of rejecting the gospel and you go down the path of, of being a false teacher and you're truly saved, God will discipline you in his fatherly love to bring you back to the faith. And if you're truly saved, you'll come back and repent. If, on the other hand, you're not truly saved, you're a false convert, and you violently, willfully go down this path of rejecting the gospel, God is under no obligation, obviously, to bring you back to repentance because you're not one of His, and you have put yourself in that position of shipwrecking your faith. So I think we can look at it both ways. If you're genuinely saved, you will repent. And God will make sure of that through his fatherly discipline. If you're not saved and you're a false professor, there's no guarantee that you will repent. But notice what Paul says there in verse 20. I have handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, this is a scary expression. What what does it mean to hand them over to Satan? That that sounds sinister. That sounds pretty serious. This is in relation to church discipline where these two men were officially excommunicated from the church. They were cast back outside into the world where they would experience the temptation and the attacks of Satan. They would no longer be under the protection of the church family. The only other place that Paul uses this language is back in Corinth. In chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, where Paul admonished the church to excommunicate or get rid of um, the man in the church who had the incestuous relationship. 
You go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. You are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Okay? The, the excommunication of an unrepentant church member, or in this case of these two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, is never meant to be merely punitive in the sense that we're just doing this to make to punish them and, and, send, and teach them a lesson, that, and, and that's all there is to it. No, it's always redemptive. Church discipline is always redemptive in the sense that when these people are excommunicated from the church, when they're out from the umbrella of the spiritual authority of the church, when they're out there in the world and they're experiencing all of the arrows of the enemy and the temptation, if they're truly saved, they're, in a sense... They come to their senses like the prodigal son did and realize how miserable it is to be outside the fellowship and the ultimate goal is for them to repent and come back under the authority of the church. Here's the bottom line about excommunicating an unrepentant. Now, now the language here is these, these men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, are unrepentant, willful stubborn sinners who are causing major problems in the church. So I said this earlier, but here's the bottom line. Regardless of who the person is, if he or she is truly saved, he or she will repent through God's discipline of being out in the world, and they will come to their senses like the prodigal son and see the ultimate misery of their condition, and they will want to repent and come back to the fold. That's one alternative. Or they will prove out over time that they were never saved in the first place and will have made final shipwreck of their faith. Here's the issue. In either case, we can't see into the hearts of these people. We can't discern their true condition. All we know is that outwardly, by their actions, by their unrepentance, they are acting like non-believers. And I think there's a higher accountability. If these are leaders in the church who are causing division in the church and teaching false doctrine, they have to be dealt with more swiftly, more harshly than just your average church member who may be living in sin and not causing major divisions, but still needs to be disciplined. I think there's a higher accountability if they're leaders that are causing division and are also leading people astray. But Let's just remember what Paul said. Even in the midst of this being handed over to Satan, we know that God can sovereignly overcome all their rebellion and bring them to himself in salvation. Don't forget what Paul just said just earlier. I was the foremost of sinners. I was the worst of sinners. I was a blasphemer. I did these rebellious things. I was the worst, but God showed me mercy. So even if these these men, we don't know the ultimate end of Hymenaeus and Alexander, if they made ultimate shipwreck of their faith, the scripture doesn't say, or whether they repented and came back, the scripture doesn't say, we're left to guess on that. But ultimately, if a person is truly one of the elect, God will work in their hearts to bring them to repentance, to overcome that rebellion, and to sovereignly bring them to himself. So the, the, the point Paul's making here is, listen, nobody's beyond the reach of God's sovereign grip, God's sovereign grace. No matter how bad you've sinned, 
look at me, Paul's saying, God can save you. But he also issues a warning. If, if you're going to cause problems in the church, if you're going to be a leader that's going to cause problems through false teaching, through division, the church has a responsibility to hand you over to Satan to excommunicate you with the hope of it being redemptive that you will repent and come back. If you repent and come back, you were truly one of God's and he worked in you. If you never repent and come back, you've made final shipwreck of your faith, thus proving out that you were never a believer in the first place. So let's just recap chapter 1. In verses 1 through 11, Timothy has been sternly charged by Paul to address this issue of these false teachers head on. You go back up to verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. That's how Paul starts out from the from the shoot, starts out from the very beginning. Timothy, it's urgent. There's false teachers. You've got to confront this head on. Then in verses 12 through 17, Paul says, I'm going to take a little break here, Timothy. And I just want to remind you of the power of the gospel. I want to remind you of how God saved me as the worst of sinners as an example to show God's perfect patience. And I'm just going to be amazed at God's amazing grace and, and radical nature of his mercy. And I'm going to erupt in praise to this great God who dared save me. And then the third part, back in verses 18 through 20, Paul goes back after this interlude about the gospel and grace. Paul reminds Timothy again, Timothy, you're the pastor here. You've got to fight the good fight of faith. It's spiritual warfare. It's grueling. There's false teachers in the church. We've had to do church discipline to these two men. Uh, make sure that you're leading, that you're dealing with these issues. And so in chapter 1, you've seen just this great picture of a lot of things related to church life. Okay, so pastors and leaders, you've got to confront false doctrine. Pastors and leaders, you've got to have purity in your own life and doctrine to be able to have the credibility and the spiritual authority through the scriptures to be able to fight the good fight. Pastors and leaders, living the Christian life as a pastor in a church that wants to be faithful to the Bible is hard work. It's grueling warfare. And you're going to have to, at times, exercise church discipline. And at times, you're going to have to exhort and rebuke and deal with false teachers and deal with all these things because it is spiritual warfare because ultimately Satan wants to destroy the church. Satan wants to oppose God and his gospel. But Paul right in the middle says, listen, the gospel's powerful. The gospel's radical. God showed perfect patience to me as the worst of sinners to be an example to all believers everywhere that God can overcome the greatest of sin to bring someone to faith in Jesus Christ because he was sent to save sinners. And I'm just going to erupt in praise to the king, immortal, king of the ages, invisible, immortal, the only wise God, be honor, glory forever and ever. And so that ends chapter 1 of First Timothy. On our next podcast, we're going to look at chapter 2, where we're going to look at prayer and, and issues related to how Paul continues to talk about how the household of faith is supposed to, to work, how you're supposed to conduct yourselves in God's church. So I pray that as you've listened to maybe the first two podcasts of chapter 1 of First Timothy, this has been an encouragement to you. I do encourage you to um, go to the Understanding Christianity Facebook page. You can go to seancole.net to find more information there. Um, go to iTunes to give us a positive review and rating. Share this on your social media platforms, whether that's Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Uh, we'd love to get the word out if you find this beneficial 
and helpful. We hope it's edifying. And hopefully during the summer here, as we go through 1 Timothy, it's an encouragement to you. So until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you, cause his face to shine upon you, and would you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus.